You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny, and of course we're going to talk about your money. But just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? All right, welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. And I got to say, I'm I'm just extremely excited for this interview with Aaron Egan, who is, and I want to make sure that I'm getting this title right, you're the Vice President and Chief Privacy Officer of Meta, the artist formerly known as Facebook. That's correct. Now, I will have a, first of all, <laughs> thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am the Chief Privacy Officer of Public Policy. So Meta has two chief privacy officers. This is actually pretty okay. unique and we get a lot of questions about it. So I'm happy to talk about that if you're interested. But yeah, so chief privacy officer, public policy. Got it. Yeah, well, yeah, you will have to give us a little <laughs> bit more meat on that yeah. bone. Yeah. Um, but because the, the the first questions that I ask are always the most difficult and the most thought-provoking, I get those out of the way first because then the rest of the conversation just improves. So we'll start with the hard ones. Yeah. Beginning with, what is the number one place that you want to visit on your bucket list, but you have not visited? Japan. So okay. I, I, you know, can I say why? Or do you just want me yeah. to have- Yeah, oh, please. Absolutely like, not. One word answers or- No, so, no. I don't want to date myself, but I'm, you know, my midlife. And at, in my midlife, I've become more spiritual. And I think Japan is a home to- Many spiritual places, Zen gardens, shrines, temples. It also is like rich in like Buddhism and all these, um, you know, Zen Buddhism and these. I just, I just want to go and I want to experience it. And so that's a, that's a place for me. That's fun. And by the yeah. way, that is interestingly enough very high up on our family because our daughter is also equally interested as well for some of the similar yeah. reasons, some of the other ones that have to do with you know art and all this other stuff. But that's yeah. really cool. So. Beautiful I love it. Too. I, There's so many good reasons to go to Japan, but yeah, I have yet to go and it's on my list. So if you come up with a family trip, I'll copy yours because I don't know make time. <laughs> Perfect. No, I love it. Uh, great spot. Okay. What food will you not eat under any circumstance? So this is going to be sort of boring because I have a very severe gluten allergy. So like, I'm not going to eat gluten under any circumstance. And it's a bummer because I'm, a, I used to, you know, eat those lovely French baguettes with all the, and I can't anymore. So it's gluten. So it's really like bread. I won't, I won't eat bread unless it's gluten-free bread. So it's a bummer, but that's, that's the thing. Well, and okay. Jeez. Again, so many <laughs> incredible <laughs> parallels. Like, so my wife's same thing. Yeah. She yeah. is gluten intolerant to so our entire family. That's our dynamic as well. Yeah. Um, she's had a, you know, suffered from ulcerative colitis. So yeah. lots of like really challenging yeah. stuff there. So I totally appreciate that. Yeah. And um, it's not a bummer. I, I, I mean, it's a given lot better the... now, by the way, because I've been gluten free forever and it's such, it's so now there's so many options. And actually I would say maybe this is not provoc that provocative, but gluten free like sweets are better. Like almond flour and they, it's just, there's so many good totally baking. I, during COVID, I made so much gluten-free banana bread. It was fantastic. So it's well, all good. And I, I totally agree with that. And I think the other thing is when you realize how heavily people lean in a lot of these recipes with like sugar and other things, like I think you lose so much flavor. And yeah, I mean, you, you look at all these gluten-free 
anybody nowadays. Like it's rich, it's real food, it's really good. Yeah, I yeah, I, I, French, I don't have a problem with it. I love it. French baguettes or the you know on the street <laughs> that you just can't get. You know, it's those things I miss. But in any event, yeah, we'll have to do something different when we go to Paris, I guess. <laughs> if you could have dinner. Or a meal with a famous person. It can be somebody alive. It can be somebody dead. Historical. You pick. Who would you want to have a meal with? And they have to be famous because when I when I when I saw this, like my first my first thought was like, man, I miss my grandmother. Like she's famous to me. She's not famous to the world, but you know, she died. You know, twenty something years ago, and I often miss her. So if I could have dinner with anyone, really, truly, it would be her more than anybody. Well- that's awesome. Well, and what about what's kind of the fun backstory to her life that you would want people to know? Because I, I feel like grandparents are, you know, there's yeah, always something just you know, incredibly fascinating. Well, I also think for her and me, you know, I think it's just where I've, first of all, obviously meeting her great grandchildren would be would have been amazing. Um, but and just sort of where I've come, she was always a big supporter of my career. She was a hardworking uh, woman, one of the like early in her days, you know, she was, uh, she was a nurse. She always worked. She was someone who instilled in me at a very young age. You know, I had a job since I was 11. I started out as a paper route. She used to be the one to like walk me to the bank. We'd like count, you know, like she just was like a, someone who was a strong advocate for me and a role model uh, around having your own purpose and, and that can include career or not. But for me, I just think that she, just to see where I've come and to see the kids, I just I just think it'd be just great to to talk to her. Oh, I, I think that that's awesome. And uh, as a fellow uh, paper delivery person myself from from the ripe old age of eight, yeah. all the way till 18, I, I did it all the way through high school. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, whether I, so it was like paper routes, it was working as Johnson's florist locally. I was a waitress. I put myself through college waitressing, put myself through law school, most of the time waitressing. Like, so I've always been someone who had to pay my way for both college and law school. And, and, and she was just someone who, um, I don't know, like, I don't, there was something about being able to check in with her, how things are going that just kind of provided some anchor and stability in my life during that time. Anyway, so it'd be just, I just, I miss her, I guess I would say. I love it. Great answer. And, and, and she is world famous. No, no, it doesn't matter what the record shows. I love it. That's great. Okay. Besides this podcast, which of course is everybody's number one, what other podcasts do you want to recommend our audience consider listening to? And I know you've, you do one, I think one or two yourself. Okay. Well, first, right. I mean, well, so we at Meta, I have a privacy conversation series, which if anyone's interested in the topic of data and policy, right, that's what I work at, the intersection of data and public policy. So what rules of the road should govern the collection, use, disclosure, protection of data? Uh, so I often have guests on. So like, fine, you could look at that one, privacy conversations. That's my plug for that one. But and then other, you know, the professional ones, I really love Pivot. I don't know with Kara Swisher. I just love the Pivot one, the podcast. But on the the one I listen to just that I just like takes me away from work is really, and there may be some listeners who listen to We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon Doyle. I don't know. But it's this podcast and the most recent one that this week, actually, I'll send it to you, Brian. She just, 
she goes into she's got her wife and her sister on the podcast and together it's all about we can do hard things so it's all about like managing life and whether it's kids or whether it's aging parents or whether it's your own internal fears and careers um relationships with your partner anyways it's just it says it takes me away from work i listen to it now that i'm commuting back and forth um to our offices downtown and I live in uh, suburbs. It's just a great, like, take me away. It's twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we can do hard things. Glennon Doyle. That's the one I recommend. Non-work. No, it sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's just like real life, like very, yeah. you know, things that we can all connect to. And, and she always to brings and... guests on that are great. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I didn't know this person, you know, and then I start following those people. So I've enjoyed that one. Awesome. And by the way, I did, I caught, I don't know if it was the most recent one, because I don't know how many times you you do the privacy conversations, but the one that you recently did with the doctor about AI, yeah, it was like 19 minutes long yeah. and you were, you were speaking English and I still think I only understood 40% of what you're talking about. So yeah, we but yes, I, I, I like enjoyed 20 it. Minutes, 25 minutes and we'd only do them once a quarter. We don't do them that often. So it's like a pretty easy lift for me and for those who are interested. And listening, I, I I enjoyed it. I went and followed uh, your guest as well. And oh yeah, and, she's but, the best. She's one of Times Top 100 AI experts, Dr. Ruman Shadhari, and she just yes. is in the room with these conversations because AI. We can talk about AI too. There's there's so much fear, but she's really saying let's focus on what's the reality, what's here today. Let's red team. Let's pressure test these models. She's an amazing. Um, I'm so glad you follow her. She's an amazing resource. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, again, I love to say I well versed in a lot of this stuff and I think I'm a little bit further along the technology curve than other people, at least in my industry are, but yeah, that was, that was some fascinating stuff. And it's, I'm always impressed when, you know, you're just, somebody can just dive in all the way down to the bottom and just know. I mean, you could just tell, like, I'm sure she could hold court on that topic for five hours and, and you'd be absolutely captivated yeah. by that. So yeah. that was really cool. Um, well, yeah, we will get back to AI, but I want to I want I do want to start because, um, you know, it, it, before we even got set up to record, I got to hear a little bit about your professional journey and you and you already just started to share. I mean, you know. You, you, from the mean streets of paper delivery all the way up to to Meta. So, but I'm I, I know like most professional journeys, it wasn't a straight line from you know A to B. So, t- just talk about your your journey and how you got to where you are, um, and and definitely let us know what were some of the twister turns because I bet there were quite a few. Yeah, yeah. So. And I can start with that paper route, but just, I was someone, like I mentioned with my grandmother and my mother too. My mother was a big ERA, equal rights amendment advocate in the seventies. And so I grew up in that kind of a household where it was women work. um, And, and so for me, and also having to put myself through college, I was working and working as both of us were since a young age. And I was a finance major in undergrad because primarily because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought that a finance degree was the best bet to get a job post-college. It was a safe bet. I had a lot of friends who were history majors, English majors. I felt like I didn't have the luxury to have that major. I felt that I needed a major that would give me a job because I knew I didn't want to be a waitress 
and delivering papers for the rest of my life. So I right. thought finance was, was the bit. And so um, I was a finance major. I worked at Merrill Lynch um, for my junior year summer. I sort of thought I was going to do that. I wasn't, I was good at it, but I was, I, I can't say at the time I was, I was loving it, but I was okay. I was like, okay, this is going to be my future. My senior year, I took a business law class and I fell in love with the law. I fell in love with the logic of the law. I fell in love with the idea of taking previous cases, resolutions, and applying them to new circumstances, right? Okay, so we've got this case. Here are the set of facts. Here's how the court ruled. Okay, here's a new set of facts. What's similar? What's different? How would you apply that ruling to this one? And in the business law context, I thought it was really interesting about corporations and mergers. And um, anyways, so I loved it. So I decided to go to law school. So I quickly, that senior year, back then, I think you had until your senior year, maybe you still do, I, I don't know, um, but took the LSAT, applied to law school, went to law school, and uh, right after law, right after college. So I, nowadays, people take a break. That's recommended. Back then, most of us just went, and I also, my break would have been waitressing. So I was like, let's just go. Um, so, <laughs> so I went to law school at GW. And I got a scholarship, which was fantastic uh, for most of my tuition. And I actually lived at home. I'm from the area of Maryland. I actually was born in Wisconsin, but then um, moved to Maryland when I was quite young. My father worked for the Department of Justice. My mom worked at the Pentagon as a defense intelligence analyst. And she actually just retired at the age of 81, my mother. Okay. Just to give you a sense. Congratulations to her. I just give you a sense as to like this, this force, right. In my life, yeah. Um, who thankfully is still in my life and is continues to provide great support. But so um, I lived at home cause I couldn't afford, you know, again. Um, and, and my parents were divorced at the time. So my mom was, my mom was actually in DC. So it wasn't too bad in terms of commute. And in law school, I was really into national moot court. I won the national moot court competition for GW. I was on law review. I was really interested in all these. I just loved the law. I loved law school. I know it's going to sound, people are going to be like, are you nuts? I just ate it up. It was my kind of place. It was just like around really great people and doing, learning really interesting things and very logical. And that's how my mind works. Um, I had taken some computer science classes back then. And by the way, this is the early nineties. So let's just uh, date ourselves. You know, it was, it's fine <laughs> for me to date myself, but um, you know, it wasn't like there was a lot I mean, yeah, there were. It wasn't like there was a lot of computer science out there for for any of us. Um, but the, but the same logic of you know algorithms and computer science, kind of a, law has a similar logic. It's just logical, and that's the way my brain. That's just how my brain works. Uh, so it felt really good. And I, um, anyways, and then I clerked for. I thought I wanted to do litigation, so I clerked. And then I decided I didn't want to do litigation, so I went to a law firm, Covington of Burling, which is a law firm downtown. And I built in the nineties. I decided to do public policy work because I had the opportunity working in DC to do public policy work. And Microsoft was a client in the nineties and they basically hired Covington. And then I became their primary young associate to figure out what law, public policy, what laws should apply in the technology space. I got really lucky because, and, and I'm the kind of person, and I think this is like, if anyone is, junior out there trying to figure out what to do. I think the thing for me and the way I was able to find and land there is because I wasn't afraid to try things. When I came to Covington, they put me in bankruptcy law. Okay. I was like, all right. But I was like, okay, give it to me. Let sure. me see. Tried it. And then what happens often, at, at least at the time at Covington, 
there are these new matter memos that come across the desk, like new matter that just came in, right? New matter, copyright. Da, da, da. We're, we're working for National Geographic to analyze the old photos. And da, da. and I would look at those and I'd be like, oh, I want to try that. So I would like message the partner and go, oh, do you have any space for someone to help on that? Is there any piece of this I can help with? I would do that constantly. And it was through that stretching, right? I had to stretch. I still had my basic bankruptcy, got to get the work done that I've been given. But I was like, I want to try these other things. And I slowly was able to really, through doing that, find that I was interested in public policy. Oh, shaping new laws, legislation. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So I I went on some uh, lobbying, like some lobbying project that had nothing to do with technology, just to get an understanding of what it's like to go to the Hill and review legislation. And anyways, long story short, it was probably like 98 when I started, 97, when I started really in the tech policy space, because I had done, I had done enough work in public policy that when this Microsoft project came in, they're like, oh, you're a good associate for this. So they gave it to me. And I became the eyes and the ears on the ground for Microsoft on all public policy issues relating to the internet. How should we, how should copyrights apply to the internet? What about trademarks, right? This is back with cyber squatting and we're all registering domain names and trying to figure that out. H-1B visas, immigration, right? There's tech tech visas for folks who are coming in. I mean, I was doing the gamut. And then, and consumer protection was a big one. So the intersection of, there are these consumer protection laws all over the United States. I'll just focus on the US. And there's also a federal law around consumer protection that's enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. In 1999, the Federal Trade Commission took its first action ever in the internet space against Microsoft. And I represented Microsoft in that matter. Wow. And the issue was applying existing consumer protection laws to the internet and to security. And Microsoft had this multi-site authentication service. It was way ahead of its time where you could have a single login to sign into multiple sites. It's like a passport for the web. And now we have that. But back then, 1999, they had said that this would be more secure than other ways to log in. And the FTC wanted us to validate and substantiate that claim. So in any event, I, re I represented Microsoft in this. And from that, I became an expert at the intersection of consumer protection and technology. And I was able to then start knocking on the doors of all the other companies, big and small, and say, hey, have you thought about this area when it comes to your collection of data and your protection of security? Have you thought about these laws that could come in if you don't have an information security program at your company. Let me tell you what the expectations are for regulators when it comes to information security. Let me tell you what the expectations are from regulators when it comes to privacy. And right around that same time, there were all these laws being proposed in Congress. Children's Online Privacy Protection Act it came into effect in 1998, right? There's a, a spam law around email marketing. That was like 2004, but that was right around that time. In Europe, there's privacy laws coming. So all this stuff was coming online right around the time I'm this like mid-level associate by that time. And I was able to just create a practice at Covington within this fantastic law firm. But I kind of had, and people around me were just like, well, what's that? And I, cause you know, it's just like right now, like what's AI? It reminds me of right. that time. Like what's AI? How are we going to regulate AI? It was exactly like that in the late 1990s. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And I built a practice. And then from there, I, you know, I had, I can't tell you the number of clients, but Facebook became a client. I was their outside counsel. And then in 2000, 
11, I was doing mostly their work for their California office. And then in 2011, the DC public policy team started to rely on me for a bunch of privacy stuff. And then from that, I had meetings with senior folks there and they were like, will you please come join us? And I was at the time, I could talk about that transition because that was a big, hard one to make. But anyways, I don't, I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to stop in case you have questions about any of that. No, I mean, it, it's fascinating because, it, you know, it, it, I mean, you're certainly not the type of person that says no, but but I think that that's, you know, like you said, just raising your hand, being open-minded, being just willing to continue to push the envelope of comfort, not stay in one place and and not wait. I mean, nothing about anything that you just shared said that you had to wait for somebody else to do something for you. I mean, you just yeah. didn't even raise your hand if you didn't have to. You just went out and and uh, put yeah. one foot in front of the other. And, and if I could just say the thing that happened, though, at right around the time of Facebook, which is interesting, is at the time Facebook came to me to ask them to come in house. I had a 10 year old, eight year old and six year old. And I had a fantastic just practice at Covington where I was had lots of different clients. And it was really interesting because it took a conversation with Cheryl Sandberg, who said to me and I met with her and she said to me. Well, actually, we had a long talk about, you know, what do you want your career to be? But she overnighted a poster to me that said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Wow. Right. What would you do if I still have the poster in my office? What would you do if you weren't afraid? And it was because, you know, at Meta, at Facebook, we have these posters on the wall. But that was one. I mean, I didn't know that at the time because I wasn't at the company. But it took me back aback because I realized that actually, even though, like you said, I was this go getter when I was, you know, it's hard when you have kids and it's hard when you have these other obligations outside, Absolutely. whether it's aging parents or all these things. So, like, I had actually stepped back from I mean, I was building a career and building a practice, but I was afraid to jump ship and go to Facebook. I had built, I, at the time I was at the company, I mean, at, at Covington and Burling for 15 years and wow. I had clients and I built this great team and, and I was comfortable. It's, I was comfortable. So here I am someone who, yes, I, I, I preach, go get it. Don't, you know, get out of your comfort zone. But I was also at the time comfortable. So I took that note from Cheryl, that poster, what would you do if you weren't afraid for me to say, oh yeah. If I wasn't afraid, I would go work at Facebook. Of course I would. It's so cool. It was pre-IPO. It was like, but I was afraid. I was afraid, like, I don't know, what this, is it security? Is it going to like, you know, is it big cut in salary? I had these young kids. It was very startup-y. And I, but but that poster and those conversations, I had a couple other conversations with Cheryl and some other folks there. They, I just, I said, you know what? I'm going to go for it. But that was a vi- big moment of, real introspection because sometimes it's hard to know that we're in the comfort zone until something comes to your face and actually like presents itself and you ask yourself what would you do if you weren't afraid i mean i love that kind of an inflection moment in life because i think they don't always they don't always happen or or sometimes i feel like when they do we don't always really grab them Mm. and and reconcile those moments for ourselves and i think you know um certainly even operating like you have in an area that constantly changing, evolving. I mean, there's just like something new. I imagine almost every day for you, it seems like. Yes. Yes. And, and that's what kept and, me at the company since <laughs> 2011, <laughs> which has been its own journey, uh, which we can talk about, but like, yeah, but that was a huge career inflection point 
and um and I'm so grateful I made the leap. And I've never looked back. No, well, and I'm sure they are as well. And uh so now let's get back to what you were saying about the setup at Meta because yeah. I, I, I want to know what the best part of your day is, but you know, also just a little bit more about kind of what that day-to-day yeah. looks like. Cause I'm sure people have a lot of different assumptions that they would put out there. But I what, what's it what's what's the best part of your day? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, let me, I'll give you a little bit of context on my job because I think it relates to the best part of my day. Um, so as I mentioned at the outset, we do have these two chief privacy officers and we set this up early on, uh, Mark set it up that way because data is the heart and soul of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, you know, where we're headed with AI, with Oculus and uh, Reality Labs and the metaverse, right? Data is the heart and soul. And so- we have a chief privacy officer of product whose job it is to make sure that in our products, we are building technologies that enforce our privacy commitments. And then my job as public policy is much more external facing. My job is to go out and get feedback from the world about our products and our services and understand where, you know, looking at privacy and principles of privacy that have been around since 1980, there's these OECD principles around, you know, data collection, data minimization, data subject rights, like people should have the right to understand what data is collected about them, control it, access it, delete it. But when you, whenever you're looking at new technologies, you have to evaluate those principles in light of new technologies, right? So what are those? And so that's my job. My job is to, and and that's with every new service, right? If we launch a new, like we, for example, for a while, you may or may not remember, but we had this, we had this graph search product on Facebook where you could like search. And, and so my job was to say, okay, well, how should this work? Right? Obviously we're going to honor if I've shared something with just friends, I'm going to, that can only come up with the search results of just friends, only your friends can see that. But there's there's just a variety of questions just with that one product. You know, what if you're searching for something like a camera and it's a friend of a friend who shared it? You know, like there's all sorts of privacy settings that matter to search that we had to get right. So my job is to go talk to experts on it. We're doing the same thing right now with AI. I can't tell you, we we have these roundtables. My job is to have roundtables around the world where we bring in experts and we talk to them every six weeks about some new product, new feature, new change, and we get feedback. So my job is to get feedback. And then my job is to bring that back to Michelle, my my. Uh, chief privacy officer of product, Michelle Prody, bring it back to him. And he then takes that feedback. And that's part of our risk assessment of products because we always are assessing risk. And I need to get the risk assessment, not just what we think internally, but what do the external people think? What are the academics? What do the experts think? And so my job has been to do that. So I think the best part of my day and I just came back from a conference last week in with the which is the Global Privacy Assembly, where everyone around the world gathers to talk about these issues, but regulators and academics and industry. And like those are those moments of meetings. And, and then I like a month ago, I was in California where we had a bunch of people come to California. We can get feedback from them. Those are the best parts of my day or week is when I'm engaging with someone really going into the details and nuances of a product launch or change and getting that feedback and really hashing through 
challenging product questions, novel product questions, and and doing everything we can to get it right for people, right? We may not always agree with everybody on every way to do it, but we're engaging with everybody on all the ways to do it. We're bringing that back and we're assessing risk and we're figuring out what's the best experience for people because that's always going to be product's North Star. That's the North Star of product. What works best for people? And then how can my job is to say, okay, how can we map that and ensure we're also protecting their privacy at the same time? So best part of my days are when I'm engaging, I think. I love it. I don't want to read too much into that, but I I, I connect with that a lot. I mean, not just traveling and going to conferences and all the other stuff, but but that thirst for understanding is, is kind yeah. of the way that I receive that. To really yeah. want to understand your audience, the marketplace, all of the parties and all of their various perspectives and views, because then that gives you the most informed view to be able to take action on. And I feel like that that just having that kind of an intentionality, I think is really important. And, you know, uh, I mentioned so many of the people that we work with professionally are in the association and the leadership space. And I think uh, certainly I've seen examples where organizations in that type of space and leaders can be really good at that. And I think also a lot of times where, you know, maybe getting outside that comfort zone or wanting to hear from people that that don't agree with you or, you know, might not have good things to say, we kind of shy away from that. But I think at the end of the day, really good leaders want to know, like they do want to understand. And again, understanding isn't about agreeing or, or you know, everybody being right but really getting that true sense of of where you are, what your place in the world is, and kind of, you know, then having a better and more formed perspective. And I just, yeah, I imagine that is really, really fun and fascinating. And you probably hear like things that you just probably never even thought were, yeah. oh, wow, you you see it this way? I never even thought Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. And it's incumbent upon us. And this is why there's two chief privacy officers, because it's a full-time job just to enforce within sure. the company. But, and then my team's job is to be out there. And yeah, like we have, for example, on our on our um, advisory group, you know, we've got all like diverse perspectives, and there are so many times I'm in, and I never, I, I, you know, I'm a white woman. I've I've walked in these shoes. I haven't had the experience, the lived experiences of so many other people, and to hear their lived experiences and hear how these kinds of products are going to affect their communities, communities, and and there's been plenty of times where it's been like this would be really beneficial to one. And but yet there's a privacy concern that they're worried about, you know, so it's it's super it's so interesting. The challenges, for example, I'll just give you one example. You know, we want to make sure when you think about AI, right, AI is basically mathematical computational analyses that take information that exists in the world today and try to understand it, digest it and spit something out, essentially. That's like one example of a use of, there's so many different types of AI, but that's like a generative AI piece. We want to avoid bias in AI. You can imagine when the information that's out there today, there is a bias that's inherent in lots of information that exists in the world. And so in order for us to train to not have bias, we might want to collect sensitive data about certain people or other types of data that yeah, like political beliefs or other types of data that could be sensitive to ensure that we're not having bias. Well, that runs against privacy because sensitive data, sensitive categories of information are things that 
many folks worry about. So you might have some communities are like, oh no, collect that data because that will avoid bias. That's important. And then you might have a regulator who's like, well, that runs afoul of our law. So we have to figure this out together. And that's why just at the conference I was at last week where AI is, as everyone knows, I'm sure in every uh, association you work with AI and how to leverage AI and work with AI is coming up. It really truly requires collaboration and engagement between industry, technology companies, regulators, advocates, civil society, which is why, for example, recently in September, Senator Schumer in Congress brought together a bunch of different groups, including industry and technology, the, the provide the builders of large language models and others in industry, civil rights groups, academics, to talk about this because you can't do it alone. And we certainly know we can't do it alone. Like there's no way that like Dr. Ruman Chattardi, who I had on the, like, she's an expert. Like I need her to tell us how to do this well. Um, so yes, it's, it's, it can be scary to hear views that disagree, but that is, that is my job. And I find in every conversation sitting down talking about the nuances, you know, we all read things and that there's headlines, but when you really get underneath it and the trade-offs and what you're thinking about, people start to understand, like you said, it's understanding better, like, okay, that's why you're doing that. Okay, that's this, that's interesting. Oh, this is hard. This is a challenge, the nuance. It it benefits all of us, frankly, I think. So I, I'm, it's my job to do it. And I think in the end, I've seen better products as a result of doing it always. Well, I have to imagine that's the case because I mean, the heart of what you just said is, is create that exceptional experience, but experience is very individual. And so if you're, you're connected to, you know, whatever the over 5 billion people that are in, you know, the metaverse, obviously that's 5 billion unique individual perspective experiences. And so yeah, there's no there's no one size shoe fits all that could ever be applied in that type of situation. And so that's, you know, I think that that's um, a fascinating, I would say, almost case study for, you know, organizations in the nonprofit association space to really think about, you know, it, it, that drive to understand, not the drive to get a particular answer, because right. Even where we are right now, there there's probably a lot more questions than there are answers. And maybe just by trying to get an answer, we're missing something. I think that that, you know, just that thirst and that intentionality about, about you know, what voice, what voice and perspective are we not hearing from that? If we don't, we won't be able to do this as well as we want to. Right. 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 I mean, that's, that's got to be a really fascinating and probably something that, you know, drives you in these moments. Yes. Um and man, gosh, you know, we're, we're, I knew, I knew we were going to do this. We're going to, we're covering so much really, really important ground. So I, I want to, for, for an association professional specific to privacy, what, what would you want somebody in that landscape to really know if you had tips and tricks for just best practices in today's environment? Because this is, you were right. All of these conversations are front and center for everybody and for these leaders. Um, but if you were to sit down in a room full of association executives representing any number of different industries, what are the real things that you would want them to walk out of there being aware of that would form how they, you know, lead and move their associations forward? 
there's it's such a broad Brian such a broad question. Yeah. I mean, I guess <laughs> thoughts. Nuances matter. Right. Like said, okay. Nuances matter. And 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 don't let fear guide you, right? That's like a, we also we look at that for personal stuff too. Like you, you know, like when you're like don't let fear guide your actions, right? Let's let's really try to understand. And I, like AI is a great example where there's a lot of fear out there. There's a lot of uh, concern, and 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 rightfully we should understand, but nuances matter. For example, even in the AI space, there's different types. You know, it's all lumped together as like ChatGPT. Okay, but there's you need to really take a step back and break it out. There are these large language models, which are essentially like think of an engine in a car, right? They're just the engine. That's mm-hmm. it. They can't drive the car. They can't do anything. They're just an engine. There's large language models, right? That that's its own form of AI that people are thinking about, like that around data. What information is collected for there? What are we doing to protect that engine and what that what's what's done there? Then around the engine, the car is these these applications of AI that are fine tuned models. That where ChatGPT is an example. We launched some AI agents. There's going to be many businesses and trade associations that are interested in AI agents, that's an additional type of generative AI. And by the way, those are just language text-based AI. There's also music, there's content, there's all sorts of other generative AI type models. And so the issues with each of them are so dependent on the type of technology you're working with. And so that's just an example of before you lump everything in one, before you're afraid of AI, it's going to be, okay, what are we talking about? What's the application? What's the use? Really trying to go through that understanding, I think is, you know, a key example. I think there's so many other areas in, in privacy where, again, I know from a regulatory perspective where my job focuses on public policy, when we've seen fear guide us, there's been a bad result. I'll give you another example, which I think will maybe people know, like think about cookies in Europe. Have you ever been to Europe where you have to always click on, yes, you accept cookies, accept cookies, accept cookies, because regulators wanted companies to get consent before they collect or use cookies and collect data through cookies. Okay. But no one is reading those consents. I don't think, I mean, I don't know, based on my experience, I just say yes. Right. Is that really the best way to be securing consent? Does that really make sense? That is an example where fear took over and, um, and, 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 and I have another example that's coming to mind, but where fear took over back in the day, way back in the day, this is an interesting example that Cheryl and I used to talk about when the car first came on, uh, came on the market in, in, in England. You, I don't know if you knew this, but there's this red flag laws where you used to have a red flag, someone with a red flag walking in front of the car. Okay. Because hmm. Like just to alert, a car is coming, a car is coming. You can imagine, right? Okay, because they all had horses and now it's a car coming. But that was an example where they were so they were so afraid of the car. And there were a bunch of competitors, the railroads and others, that were able to build on that fear to put to put in place regulations in London that really hampered the growth and innovation and development of the car. So what happened? In Germany, they didn't have those laws. They came up with other other sort of frameworks that worked. And look at where the German car has, go, has come, right? So fear, red flag laws, cookie laws, like they 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 often result in bad laws. And so this is just again this whole idea of nuances matter and don't let fear 
drive you because when you're afraid of something, that's usually a place you need to like <laughs> investigate and probably have some conversations and figure out a better path. Well, and I've, I've always, I, that, so thank you for those examples too. Cause uh, especially the red flag one, that's, that's, that's a great fascinating one as well. Um, but I've, I've always, you know, as, as somebody that's neurodivergent, my ADD brain loves to just kind of like break, you know, we can blow it all up and do something new, especially if it's new, better, this or that. Like my brain doesn't necessarily grab hold of things as much as I guess other other people's do. So I I love that notion, but I think fear is such, it's right, it's like it's testing the temperature of the room, right? And and there's always got to be something that's on the other side of it. But I think yes. so much time we think of it as, you know, the the it, it needs to be the thermometer not the thermostat and we treat it like it's a thermostat and it sets the peg and then yeah you're right like you, you can't really go anywhere right you just you, you create your own ceiling in a lot of those situations and you create echo chambers as well i think that that's the other side of it where you know because we've kind of we've latched on to essentially an assumption right yeah. a framework that may or may not be true right and then we're getting feedback about this one assumption rather than even asking ourselves, well, is this even true? Like, what right. is the other side of this? And do we have a good understanding? And right. yeah, I it's think a that good that's time to check yourself when you feel fear and you're like, Oh, I'm a, it's a good time to check yourself, go outside, get some other opinion, figure it out. And I think that can apply across everything, not just tech, you know, tech and privacy and AI, but anyways, yeah. Careers well, too. We just talked about what would you do if you weren't afraid? It's the same concept. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, and I just, you know, I, I try to always let emotions just be indicators. They're like, like warning yeah. lights on the dashboard yeah, of my life. Yeah. Like what's yeah. going on here. This probably isn't reality, but it's at least giving me a window into something that I need to lean into and figure out. Yeah. Um, And, and I, you know, again, and, and it, I mean, it's amazing because you're, you're right. You've seen on, on massive global scales, how something that, small or, or, or an emotion that powerful can can then <laughs> literally become legislation or have yeah. major impact yeah um, yeah and i know you know that 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 can have that has a lot of application and i if, if i go back and i'm thinking also as well in these conversations about privacy ai and, and, I, and i also really liked what you were saying in terms of bias because that is yeah. another word that does come up so much and data bias and avoiding data bias. And let's pull on that thread a little bit more because, uh, I mean, I think I've, you know, in, in kind of operating in the DEI and A space, quite often we have conversations about this in terms of, you know, hiring culture and people. But I mean, data is its own domain and it's got a lot of the same kind of issues. So if I'm, if I'm, if I'm a leader of any kind of organization, association, nonprofit, for profit, how should I be thinking about these things in terms of data? Because I think a lot of times we think like, you know, get the right data. And it's it, it's like you said, it's an engine. But I don't know that we always really recognize that, you know, not only is the tool is only good in the hand that uses it, but you got to be having the right tool, I guess, as well as the other side of that, right? You know, sometimes you're only getting certain data sets to maybe that's yeah. part of the problem. So yeah. how do you see this playing out from just a decision making and a leadership standpoint? Well, Certainly at Meta, it's part of all, you know, this issue 
comes in sort of many, in many different facets to it. But I can say in our products, which is what I'm talking about with AI is like, you know, how can we collect additional data to avoid bias? You know, we have, you know, we've run, we have these different types of systems within our company. Advertising is a good example where we want to make sure that with advertising, that especially in certain categories of advertising, so housing, um, credit, there's certain types of advertising where we want to make sure that we're ensuring it goes to a wide audience. And so we are going to do something where we are bringing in and injecting in uh, data. So we'll often look at, okay, who would this have served? Who would, who would this ad have gone to in the first instance? And then if it's not going to the right, a, a, a wide mix, then we're going to add in additional data to get it to go to the, to the, to the, to, to a wider mix. You can imagine, let's say there's an ad for an employment opportunity of nursing. We don't want to make sure that's just going to women. We want to make sure that's also men are seeing that. So we're going to like take a look at outputs and we've built systems in place that take a look at the output before something is delivered. Where would this have gone? And then we're going to inject something into the system to make sure it goes to a wider audience. So I think when you, you can actually use technology to and we work on technology, we're going to continue to work on technology in the AI space too, where you can try your best to avoid the bias that might be inherent in a system, you know, where it might think, oh, nursing women, it, it just top of mind. And we're like, well, wait a second. You know, we want to make sure that that actually reaches a wider audience. So that's within our products. We're doing a lot of that. And then obviously also with employment and hiring ourselves at the company, we're very focused on, as you said, DEI initiatives. And, um, you know, within Meta, we've got different groups and communities and we're always and trainings and we're always looking at ways and allyship and how can we be working together to um to avoid bias and in systems that exist in, in our culture so it there's sort of lots of strands there but i do think data can be a valuable input into these systems to help address to recognize it and address it and, and i guess you have to be doing both sides of that though right you have to yeah. be intentionally making sure that you know you're using things the right way, but also that that there is the potential for bias, so that there's a strategy or a system or a way that you're trying to tackle that. And this um, is where third parties are really helpful. Like we often engage with LGBT Tech. It's a fantastic organization that is going to give us a bunch of insights in areas that maybe we we hadn't thought of. You know, just a bunch of just civil rights communities. You know, leadership conference where we talk with those folks about different types. So. We're, there's lots of different experts outside the company who provide valuable insights into how to ensure we're doing the best we can in this space. No, that's really, really critical. Um, the last piece that I'm sure we could also take an entire other hour on, but if you were to pull the curtain back on on kind of what you see in the regulatory landscape what are some things that, you know, again, regardless of you're, you're a leader of any kind of organization, what are some of the things that probably we need to be aware of, especially things if, you know, I mean, growing up in D.C., time on advocacy and, and engaging in, in you know, pub public policy and meeting with our constituents and our representatives, um, it seems like it's a crazy time. And I think a lot of people are kind of they don't necessarily know. You know, or is it hands off? Do we just kind of wait till all the craziness settles down? But you know, you can't really take that step back approach. So, what do yeah. you see there, and and what do you want us to be aware of? Yeah, we can't at Meta. We're sort of in the hot seat, um, so there's no, step, there's no stepping back, and we're engaging and answering questions. And for us, certainly, 
there's going to be a lot of interest as there should be around upcoming elections in the US but globally we're all we have a whole team that's in, involved in elections and misinformation and and even with what's happening uh in with Gaza and Israel and misinformation I mean there, we have teams focused there so there's just teams that I don't run but who are hyper focused on ensuring that we are doing everything we can to get the right information to the to people because there's often this misinformation unfortunately as a society there are people who just want to troll and do share negative things and so we have a whole team thousands and thousands of people at the company whose job it is to focus on election interference and misinformation and they're working nonstop so that's always going to be an area that's not my area but that's always certainly an area that we see as just high high interest appropriately. Um, and so that's an area of, of, of serious engagement. I think AI is the other one where there's this, as I mentioned, because there's fear and people are worried about it, but there's also a lot of really smart conversations happening too. So I think you're seeing a little bit of both. I think, um, and there's lots of facets to it. There's questions about what, you know, how do we ensure proprietary information does not get into these language models? If you're your own company, your own association, there are steps you should be taking, guidelines you should be offering for your employees around like how they can use generative AI themselves, right? We don't want our, we don't want companies secrets. It's pretty obvious though. Like it's the same rules that would apply to the internet. You wouldn't want your company or your association to put trade secrets on the internet. You would want, you wouldn't want them to also either be in these AI agents or people to be using AI in that way. So it's not that new, but there's a lot of just AI, just fear. And so it's about, okay, here are the steps that here's what's not new do these things. Here's what's interesting and new, where you might need some new rules of the road. We're seeing interest in legislation, primarily in Europe. That's going to be likely to happen by the end of the year. There was a lot of interest in Europe. It's going to start there. But then you're seeing the White House and others in the US. You're seeing the G7 focusing on AI. So AI as a topic in the regulatory area is, I think, top of mind for certainly our company. And we're uh, engaged there. Um, I think there's a bunch of other areas that are super important. Youth is really important. There's a lot of interest there that we're working on and, and working to get right. There's questions around advertising and the appropriate use of data for advertising that we're always trying to balance. Um, and so it's, 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 we do, my job is a global job, so I don't just look at the U.S. So, uh, but the states are going to be active. If I can just sit with the U.S. for a second, because we're not going to expect, like you said, Brian, it's not, Congress is not functioning that healthily. We also are not likely in an election year to get big comprehensive privacy legislation. So the states have been active in the privacy space. They've been active in the youth space. We can expect them to continue to be active. They're active on biometrics, which is sensitive data, like facial recognition. Um, so these are all uh, areas of interest for us that we will be uh, engaging in. And then that's just, just the U.S. and and there's a lot of other countries in the world, but there's a lot of stuff happening. So I don't know to what extent your folks would be interested in that, but um, I think states are where it's going to be at when it comes to regulation uh, for the next couple of years. In an industry that's that's state regulated itself in the financial yeah. industry, so much of that, we just yeah. see, You're used to you that. know, it's kind of, right. yeah. for us technology, it's like, it's, you know, if, if California goes one way, I mean, do all the rest of the services go that way? It's a really interesting. I don't know if you guys, if you're, if your folks, you know, have different services in different states, that's going to have to be perhaps where we go. We have never done that yet before. So this is sort of a new area for tech. Uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, yeah, I have to imagine because there's, there, you know, like a lot of things, I guess there aren't too many precedents as you kind of 
move forward. So everybody, you know, at some point, leaders are going to try to plant their flags in certain areas. And it's just, I mean, it's really interesting, you know, uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I really appreciated what you were saying as well in terms of, yes, so AI and, and just this big conversation about something that's new and not everybody quite understands, and that's all healthy, but it still doesn't, it goes back to pretty simple, like policies, procedures, and 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 just applying a framework that you probably already had before AI became part that's of the right. conversation, right? Because we've had to take all these steps all along. We, we should right. be very privacy conscious. We should have a cyber risk policy for our organization. Right. We should empower all of our employees to know what their role is that's to right. protect the organization as data and all the other stuff. And and I guess that's really good to hear yeah. from, 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 from where you're sitting, not just, you know, when we're saying it and we're talking to uh, association professionals and a lot of times we're talking about cyber insurance. And I'm like, if you really want to know where you're exposed, go ahead and, and, and go through a cyber insurance policy application because <laughs> right. they ask you questions that it's like, wow, I never even, Right. There are whole sections on here I've never even thought right. about. It's, and it might be that crazy. AI could replace the word cyber with AI. I mean, it could be the same yeah. risk. Or, but then where are the gaps? I mean, that's the analysis. What do we have today? What can we work with today? What are we or what the protections we already have? The internet has many of the same risks. And then where are the new ones and what those are? And let's be really specific about where they are today, where they might go in the future. Okay. But we're not there yet. So yeah. I just think taking it step by step, nuanced, recognizing the nuances, figuring out the frameworks that exist, and then where are the gaps? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. No, I love that. You and I could continue this conversation for hours and hours, <laughs> but but my audience would 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 kill me. So um, yeah. let's let's end on a high note. Any any kind of final shout outs you want to make, or any kind of final parting thoughts that you you wanted the audience to walk away with? You know, just continue operating from a place of openness and that mantra, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Like just that, that's my mantra, I guess, of this conversation, because it feels like that that's something we've talked about and not letting fear ride the, you know, govern the day is, is, um, as I guess the lesson that I sitting here is my career, but also how I look at my job every day when it comes to the policy landscape. Um, so I think that's a, perhaps the right theme to to leave everyone with i think that that's fantastic yeah and it's, it's got application on all levels what a great great leadership approach so thank you for being on hopefully maybe we'll we'll, we'll get a chance to do this again because i am sure after after we put this out here there's going to be a lot of interest in, in pulling on some of those other threats so thank you so much for your time thanks for having me it's been really fun appreciate it information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Heaney is a registered representative and an investment advisory representative of Dempsey Lord Smith, LLC. 
Dempsey Lord Smith LLC is not affiliated with the Haney Company. Securities offered through Dempsey Lord Smith LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through Dempsey Lord Smith LLC, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor.